I don't think anyone who has any sort of biblical worldview would disagree with this statement. America is in trouble. Since 1973, we've brutally murdered almost 60 million babies on the altar of abortion. Of those babies that are born, 40% are born out of wedlock, either to a single mom or to a mom who is living with someone who is not her husband. We have not only accepted, but we have embraced homosexuality, and we've legalized same-sex marriage to the point that if anyone speaks out and says that it is a sin, they are called a homophobe. We have now embraced transgenderism and gender fluidity. The idea that, that gender isn't established by God. God doesn't create us male and female. We can choose, we can determine our own gender by how we feel, what we think. Pornography has always been a problem with mankind, but with the internet, it has become not only a problem, but it has become an epidemic. Today, it is estimated that over 40 million people regularly view pornography online. Some people have said that it holds a significant threat to our society. Politically, we are more divided and more partisan than we have ever been. Financially, our national debt is at over $27 trillion, and it doesn't look like that is going to change. I don't know how you pay back $26 trillion in debt. And spiritually, the number of people that describe themselves as atheists, agnostics, or nothing in particular has risen to over 26% in America. Now, there will be some who debate whether the first settlers in America wanted to establish a Christian land, whether our founders wanted to establish a Christian nation. But I believe the truth is apparent. When the pilgrims came to America on the Mayflower, they signed a document that was known as the Mayflower Compact. And that document started this way, for the glory of God and the advancement of the Christian faith. When the first settlers came to America, their desire was to build a land that brought glory to God and advanced the Christian faith. On the place where they landed, there is now this statue of a man holding a Bible in one hand, and in his other hand, he has a finger lifted up heavenward to God. Were these early founders perfect? No. Were they all God-fearing Christians? Absolutely not. But overall, they wanted to establish a land that would honor God and reach the world. But I want you to know this morning that we have fallen far short of that goal. Our nation is no longer, if we ever have, seeking to bring glory to God, and we certainly aren't advancing the gospel. And though we may find ourselves wanting to blame the political establishment and, and Hollywood immorality and Wall Street greed and a host of other things, those things aren't the problem. There are some of us that want to blame the White House or the State House, but they are not the problem. Listen very carefully. Our nation is not the problem. 
So the solution that we need is never going to be found in political elections, educational change, social reform, income redistribution, or a host of other things. We are the problem. The church of Jesus Christ is the problem. And if we're going to ever see America become what God desires for it to become, then you and I as the people of God, the church of God, must look inward and see what we need to be and what we need to do. The problem is we are no longer salt and light in our world. Tragically, we have become just like the world. Henry Blackaby said it this way, the salt has lost its saltiness and the light is no longer dispelling the darkness. There was a new report that came out this past Tuesday by the Cultural Research Center of Arizona Christian University under the leadership of George Barna. And that report says that American Christians are undergoing a post-Christian reformation. And then it said that Americans are redefining biblical beliefs according to secular values. Did you hear that? We are redefining biblical beliefs on the basis of our secular values. And what is tragic is that research indicates that evangelicals, those who are supposed to believe that the Bible is the Word of God, are adopting unbiblical beliefs. Let me give you a few. 75% of people in this research were discovered that they reject the idea that we are sinners. 75% of evangelical Christians say we aren't sinners. 52% do not believe in objective, absolute, moral truth. 44% believe the Bible's teaching on abortion is ambiguous. 34% do not believe marriage is between a man and a woman. Understand, if that's what we believe in the evangelical church, we have lost our way. And if we are going to ever see our nation move toward God... We as the people of God are going to have to move toward God and we are going to have to lead the way. And that takes me to my conviction. We need revival. If we are going to ever experience the power of God and the hand of God upon our nation, if we ever have, we need revival. But the question we have to ask is what is that? What is revival? When I was growing up as a young boy, every year in the spring and the fall, we would have services. They were week-long services. They would start on Sunday. They would go through the end of the week. We'd bring in a guest speaker. We'd bring in a guest musician to, to lead in worship. We would have special nights. We'd have food. We called it revival. And let me tell you, it was a whole lot of fun. We would see people saved, and we would see things happen. But is that revival? Is revival simply a series of services where the church comes together with a guest speaker and a guest musician? And I'm here to tell you, that's not what revival is. I want you to write this down. This is my definition. 
Revival is a move of God among God's people that results in a spiritual awakening in the world. Let me say that again. Revival is a move of God among God's people that results in a spiritual awakening in the world. You see, for something to be revived, it has to first of all be alive. You can't revive lost people because lost people are spiritually dead. Lost people don't need to be revived. Lost people need to be born into the family of God. It is only the people of God who can experience revival. Charles Finney said this. He said, revival is a renewed conviction of sin and repentance. Did you get that? It is a renewed conviction of sin, our sin, and then repentance toward that sin, followed by an intense desire to live in obedience to God. And listen, when revival happens in the church, when we have a renewed conviction over sin and repentance that leads to an intense desire for obedience to God, when that happens, then God will use the church to bring spiritual awakening to our nation. So what needs to happen for the church to experience revival. Well, that's what we're going to focus on for the next four weeks because I want you to hear me. Our only hope is revival. And revival happens among God's people. And so if America has any hope of surviving and thriving as a nation then it is the people of God experiencing revival by God that is going to make that happen. So for the next four weeks, we're going to seek to answer that question of how can we experience revival. And as we start this morning, I want us to start by looking at two passages. One in the book of Judges, Judges chapter 2. We're going to really take a walk through that entire book. And then in 2 Chronicles, 2 Chronicles chapter 7. Now, in the book of Judges is toward the first of your Bible. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, you're there. And then once you find that, then you can turn over to the right a little bit further. Go through those books of doubles, 1st, 2nd Samuel, 1st, 2nd Kings. And then you're there at 1st and 2nd Chronicles. So turn to Judges chapter 2. And then 2 Chronicles chapter 7. Now in the book of Joshua, we are told the story of God leading his people to the promised land. And as Joshua and other godly leaders are leading the people of God and they are walking in obedience to God, God gives them this incredible land of promise. But as the book of Joshua ends, there's still land to be taken. They are living in the promised land, but they haven't done everything that God wants them to do. And so Joshua makes this vow to God, and he encourages the people to make this vow. Joshua says, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And the Bible says that the people did that. And we are told as long as Joshua and the people that were leading with Joshua were alive, the people did that. They followed God. They seek to serve God. They sought to walk in obedience to God. 
But when Joshua and those other godly leaders died, something happened. I want you to listen to what it says in Judges chapter 2, beginning in verse 10. It says, after that generation died, that generation that walked in obedience, another generation grew up who did not acknowledge the Lord or remember the mighty things he had done for Israel. The Israelites did evil in the Lord's sight. Then it goes on to say they abandoned the Lord. Then it says they went after other gods. Then it says and they angered the Lord. So he handed them over to raiders who stole their possessions. He turned them over to their enemies all around and they were no longer able to resist them. And the people were in great distress. During Joshua's lifetime and those who had gone with him, the Bible tells us that the people followed the Lord. This was a generation that had seen the Lord work with their own eyes. They had experienced the power of God in their own lives. They knew what it is to know God and live for God. But then after that generation died, we're told that the next generation came along. And that generation did not know the Lord. They did not know the things that the Lord had done for them. The word know or acknowledge in verse 10 is the Hebrew word yada. In Genesis chapter 4 verse 1, it is used to describe Adam having sexual relationships with his wife Eve and she conceived. The word means an intimate relationship. And what this is saying here is that there arose a generation that did not have an intimate relationship with God. It's not saying they didn't know about God. It's not saying they couldn't repeat the stories about God. But it's saying when it comes to a real, personal, intimate relationship, they didn't have it. Now let's stop there for just a moment. I believe this is the first problem in the church in America today. Our churches are made up of unregenerate people. Say, Rocky, you're being judgmental. No, I'm being factual. Our churches are made up of people who have never had a life-changing experience with Jesus. We know the facts. We can even write out the plan of salvation. We prayed the prayer, but when it comes to life change, it's never happened. If we were having to put our our hand on a lie detector and, and take a test that says, has your life ever truly been changed by the power of God? Many of us would have to answer no. Our life has never been changed. And yet the Bible says that when we encounter the living God, the resurrected Lord, everything changes in our life. He makes everything new. And yet our churches are made up of people who have prayed prayers at an altar. They've got dunked in water and they think that's going to get them to heaven. I'm here to tell you that unless the Spirit of God is living in you, unless the Spirit of God has convicted you of your sin, your lack of righteousness, and that you're going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ, And unless that conviction has brought you to your knees where in utter desperation you cried out asking God to forgiveness, trusting Jesus to be your Savior, you haven't been saved. Too many of us today 
have the knowledge of Jesus. We have the knowledge about God, but we don't know them. And because of that, the Bible says in Judges that the people of God abandoned the Lord. They did evil in his sight. They went after other gods, and that angered the Lord, and he gave them over to raiders. And over and over again, we see this pattern repeated. The people did evil. God got angry, and he handed them over to raiders. They cried out to God in desperation. God heard their prayers. God answered their prayers. God sent a deliverer, and they experienced revival. Let me walk you through some of Judges. In Judges chapter 3, verse 7, it says, The Israelites did evil in the Lord's sight. They forgot about the Lord their God. Then the Lord burned with anger against Israel, and he turned them over to King Cushion. But when the people cried out to the Lord for help, what did they do? They cried out to the Lord for help. The Lord raised up a rescuer to save them, so there was peace in the land for 40 years. They did evil. They cried out to God for help. God brought a rescuer, and God brought revival to the land. Judges chapter 3, verse 12. Once again, the Israelites did evil in the Lord's sight. The Lord gave King Eglon of Moab control over Israel because of their evil. But when the people cried out to the Lord for help, the Lord again raised up a rescuer to save them, and there was peace in the land for 80 years. They did evil. God put them in bondage. They cried out to the Lord for help. God rescued them. There was revival. Judges chapter 4. The Israelites did evil in the Lord's sight, so the Lord turned them over to King Jabin. Then the people of Israel cried out to the Lord for help. Then there was peace in the land for 40 years. Chapter 6. The Israelites did evil in the Lord's sight, so the Lord handed them over to the Midianites. Then the Israelites cried out to the Lord for help. Through the rest of Gideon's lifetime, about 40 years there was peace in the land. Over and over and over again, the people did evil. God put them in bondage. They cried out to God for help. God brought a deliverer. And God brought revival and peace to the land. Listen to what it says in Judges 10. Again, the Israelites did evil in the Lord's sight. Do you see a pattern? <laughs> over and over and over again. They did evil in the Lord's sight, so the Lord burned with anger against Israel. He turned them over to the Philistines. The Israelites hurt, or the Israelites were in great distress. Finally, they cried out to the Lord for help, saying, We have sinned against you because we have abandoned you as our God. I want you to notice something here. This is the first time in the book of Judges when they cried out to God that they acknowledged their sin. It's the first time. Finally. Finally, they've said, We've sinned against you. But I want you to notice God's response. The Lord replied, did I not rescue you from the Egyptians, the Amorites, the Ammonites? When they oppressed you, you cried out to me for help and I rescued you. Yet you have abandoned me. You've served other gods. So I will not rescue you anymore. Listen, hear me. There can come a point where God says, I'm tired of it. Enough is enough. Listen, people of God. People who are supposed to know God. You live in sin long enough. You live like the world long enough. And you get desperate and cry out to God. God's going to say, I'm tired of it. I'm not rescuing you anymore. But let's follow along. 
Go and cry out to the God you have chosen. Let them rescue you in your hour of distress. But the Israelites pleaded with the Lord and said, We have sinned. Punish us if you see fit. Only rescue us today from our enemies. Then the Israelites put aside their foreign gods and served the Lord. They repented. And it says, and he, God, was grieved by their misery. Did you get that? God said, I'm not going to rescue you. I'm not going to deliver you. But what did he do? He rescued them. He delivered them. What is that telling you? It's telling you that God's love for you is endless. God's love for you knows no bounds. You mock him. You spit on him. You disobey him. You follow after the gods of this world. And yet he still loves you over and over again. You turn your back on him. And over and over again he forgives you. And he loves you. Do you see the pattern? God loves us with an everlasting love. And he wants to forgive us. But hear me, church. Hear me. The book of Jeremiah makes it clear that there will come a point where God says no more. The people of Judah cried out to God asking for forgiveness, asking God to take away the mighty Babylonian empire that was going to take them into captivity. And God said, no, you crossed the line. And God's judgment came. You need to understand that God's judgment will come at times. And if we continue to mock the grace of God by expecting God to forgive us when we continue in our sinful ways, there will come a point when God says no more. Judges 13, verse 1, again, the Israelites did evil in the Lord's sight. So the Lord handed them over to the Philistines. And then as you get to the end of the book, Judges chapter 21, verse 25, the very last words in this book, in those days Israel had no king. All the people did whatever seemed right in their own eyes. In other words, everyone determined in their own mind what was right and what was wrong. Relativism, moral, spiritual relativism, What's true for you may not necessarily be true for you. That's how they were living. And if there's anything that defines 21st century America, it would be this. Everyone does whatever is right in their own eyes. Don't tell me what's right. Don't tell me what's wrong. I get to determine what's right, what's wrong. And that's how the book of Judges ends. Over and over again, the people of God do evil. God puts them in bondage. They cry out to God. God has mercy. God has grace. He shows them compassion. He raises up a deliverer who sets them free. They have peace. They experience revival. And then they turn back to their wicked ways until finally everyone is doing whatever is right in their own eyes. God finally brought a king to Israel. First King Saul was a, ended up being a wicked man. The second king, David, was a man after God's own heart. And, and the third king was Solomon, a man that God gave immense wisdom to and, and God told to build a temple to his glory. And Solomon did that. He built this temple. And the Bible says in, in 2 Chronicles chapter 5, when they were dedicating the temple, they sacrificed so many animals that they couldn't even count them. And then the Levites led the people in worship to God. 
And the Bible says that the cloud of God came down and the glory of God so filled the temple that they couldn't even go in. In chapter 6, we see Solomon building this platform in front of the people before the temple. And Solomon humbly bows down before God on that platform and begins to pray out to God. He praises God. He thanks God. And then he says something. He acknowledges that the people of God will sin. But then he says, but when we sin and you bring pestilence and you bring disease and you bring death, if we cry out to you, will you forgive us and will you heal us and will you forgive our sins? And after Solomon prayed that prayer, they had some more sacrifices. And the Bible says that the the fire of God came down out of heaven in in chapter 7, verse 1. And it consumed the sacrifices that the people gave. And then the glory of God filled the temple again. And for two weeks, the people worshipped and praised God. It says they were filled with joy. And then Solomon sent them home. And then it says... That God answered Solomon's prayer. See, chapter 6 of 2 Chronicles is Solomon's prayer to God. In chapter 7, God gives his answer to Solomon. I want you to listen to what he says beginning in verse 13. He says, when I shut up the heavens so that there is no rain, or command locusts to devour the land, or I send a plague among my people, if my people who are called by my name, will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways. Then will I hear from heaven, will forgive their sin, and will heal their land. Again, it's about crying out to God. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves, pray, cry out to God, seek my face, turn from their wicked ways, then will I hear from heaven, forgive their sin, and will heal their land. Now, there are some that will say, well, that was to the nation of Israel. That's an Old Testament word. But can I tell you that Paul's letters to the Corinthians says that God gave these examples in the Old Testament for you and I today as followers of Jesus? The things that happened in the Old Testament happened as examples for you and I. And so even though this is telling us how the people of Israel were to pray for revival, it is telling you and I how we're to pray for revival. Now notice several things here. God begins by saying, when I shut up the heavens. Not if I shut up the heavens, but when. What is that acknowledging? That's acknowledging that there will be times when God says, I am shutting off my blessing. God is not obligated to bless you, child of God. God is not obligated to answer your prayers. There will be times when we fall into sin and we fall into rebellion and we fall into disobedience where God says enough is enough and I am shutting the windows of heaven. And biblically, Whenever it speaks of the windows of heaven, it's talking about the blessings of God. When it talks about shutting up heaven, it's talking about the blessings of God. So God says, there will be times when I shut off my blessings. And who is he speaking to? He's speaking to his people. If I shut up heaven so that these happen, and if my people who are called by my name Listen carefully. You and I are responsible 
We cannot blame our nation. We cannot blame Hollywood. We cannot blame Washington. We cannot blame the pornographers and the smut peddlers and the drug traffickers and the sex traffickers and all of these other people. We can't blame them for what's happening. We are to blame for what's happening in America. We have ceased to be salt and light. We have ceased to be humble before Almighty God. We come together on Sunday and we think we're all this and more. We look at our lives and we think that we've got it all together and everybody else in the world is the one who needs forgiveness and needs to repent when the Bible says that it's us that need to repent. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face. What are we to seek? God's face. Not his hand of blessing, but his face. And hear my heart. If you seek the face of God rather than the hand of God, you will come into the presence of God. And when you do, like Isaiah, when he went into the presence of God, you will cry out, woe is me, I am undone, I am a man of sinful lips, and I live among a people of sinful lips. You won't come into the presence of God saying, God, do something to all those sinful people you will come before God, falling on your face, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Because when you come into God's presence, you realize how holy he is and how unholy you are. The problem with most of us is it's been so long since we've been into the presence of God, if we've ever been in his presence, that we don't know how holy he is. God is a consuming fire. And when we go into God's presence with sin in our life, if we're really in his presence, he is going to consume the sin in our life. That's why David prayed, search me, God. Know my heart. Try me and see if there is any wicked thing in me. God, I don't want to risk going into your presence with sin in my life. You see, revival is a work among God's people. The only hope for America is for God's people to get right. We have to repent. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves, pray, seek my face, turn from our wicked ways, not just feel sorry for our wickedness, not just shed tears for our wickedness, we've got to turn from our wicked ways. And here's the problem. We look just like the world today. We act just like the world today. Let, let me tell you, I understand, I understand the political climate we're living in, and I've got opinions. And I gotta tell you, I don't mind posting those opinions. But if I can't post those opinions with a Christ-like spirit, loving the people who disagree with me, then by God, I better not post a thing. Do you hear me? We've got to stop it. We're acting like the world. We're living like the world. And the Bible says, come out from among them and be a separate people. We are called to be a pure bride of Christ waiting for our groom to come. 
And we are so dirty and we are so filthy. And we're wondering why revival tarries. I'll tell you why revival tarries. It tarries because of us. It tarries because of me. It tarries because of you. And unless we experience revival, our nation has no hope. So what is it? What is it in your life that is keeping you from experiencing revival, that is keeping our church from experiencing revival? What are some of the things? Can I give you some things to just ponder? Some of us have adopted the values of the world. There are some of you here today who are sleeping with someone you're not married with. That's sin. Stop it. It doesn't matter whether you're a teenager or whether you're an adult. If you're sleeping with someone you're not married with, you are committing sexual sin against a holy God. Stop it. Some of you here today have a closet problem with alcohol. It controls you. Stop it. And if you can't stop it, get help. It's a sin against God Almighty. Some of you are self-righteous. You look at other people and say, God, I thank you that I'm not like. Stop it. Look in the mirror at yourself. Some of you are, are either racist or you think you're better than someone else because you live in a nicer home or drive a nicer car. That's sin. We're living like the world. Some of us, our language is just like the world. I don't care if there are preachers that get on sta stage and use potty language, it's a sin. The Bible says, let no unwholesome word come out of your mouth. And it's just as bad to laugh at those things as it is to say them yourself. Stop it. Stop it. We've compromised our convictions. Our priorities are out of kilter. And I don't want to get off on a tangent, but listen to me. Listen. I'm all for our kids playing sports, and I'm all for our kids doing extracurricular activities. But here's the rub. There are some of you that are teaching your children that sports and extracurricular things are more important than worship. You say, how are we doing that? You're doing it each and every weekend when you go to these tournaments. And if that doesn't speak to you, don't take offense. If it does speak to you, take offense. We wonder, we wonder why our kids are growing up and they're turning from the church in droves. The reason is because we've modeled it to them. We've got to stop it. I don't know what it is in your life, but here's what I know. I know until we get our act together as the people of God, we're never going to be able to impact the world out there. Come out from among them. Be a separate people. For some of us, we're holding a grudge. For some of us, we're gossips. 
We say we're not, but oh, we talk behind people's backs. And I'm here to tell you that those are sins that will keep the power of God from falling upon our lives, the life of our church. So what is it in your life? What is it? I don't know where you're at. I'm desperate. I don't want to go on like I'm going on in our nation. I mean, I feel like I walk on eggshells. I feel like our, our nation's going to hell in a handbasket. And we're leading the way. It's time to be different. It's time to lead the way back to God. And here's the deal. Listen, it, it could be too late for America. I don't know. And for someone to say it's never too late, yeah, it can be too late. It could be too late for America, but here's the good news. It's not too late for you. It's not too late for us. We can determine we're going to get right with God. We're going to live different. Regardless of what it takes, regardless of what it costs, regardless of where it leads, we're going to be different because we serve an awesome God who is holy and he deserves for us to be a holy people. So here's what I want you to do. I know we've gone over a little bit. But I want you to take a few moments right now where you're at. And I just want you to get before God. And I want you to confess those things that you know of. Some of you, there are things you know. And if you're one of those people that you don't know anything to confess, perhaps because you've been confessing, and that's great. Maybe it's because you're self-righteous. Then ask God to show you. And I'll tell you, God will show you. So let's take a few moments and let's just begin to come clean before God so that God can begin to work in our life. So let's pray. Father God, I am so tired of going through the motions. I'm tired of dotting the I's and crossing the T's. Father, I'm tired of 
personally and us corporately seeming to lose to the world. And I know it's our fault. We've allowed sin, pride to come into our lives. We've lost our desperation for you. We're complacent. We're satisfied. Lord, forgive us. Lord, show us our sins personally, corporately. Lord, let us know that this world is not our home. Father, show us that our king is not a Republican or a Democrat. He's king. He deserves our praise and our honor and our submission. Father, convict us of our sin. Show us our unrighteousness. Prepare us to stand before your judgment. Make us a people that you can use in this this nation. Break us. Lord, I beg you, break us. Humble us. Cleanse us. I pray that revival begin with us will begin with us. Father, I humbly pray this in Jesus name.